Hello, you are listening to the Undertow Podcast. Uh, my name is Robert Watson. I'm here with my co-host, Bubba Beasley. Um, this is the uh, first official episode of the Undertow Podcast, where we are exploring the world of Brubaker crime comics, Brubaker and Sean Phillips. Um, and uh, yeah, we decided it would be a good time to to uh, launch this podcast to kind of coincide with the uh, 10th anniversary of Criminal. Um, the uh, 10th anniversary one-shot came out, uh, I guess it would have been about a week ago, a week and a half ago, something like that, and lots to talk about there. Um, the podcast, uh, just some general information, it's now available on iTunes. The Undertow Podcast is what we're calling it. Um, you can also find the episodes or more information on us at undertow.podbean.com. And uh, we just recently set up a, an email and a Twitter account for the podcast. Um, so undertowpodcast at gmail.com or at undertowpodcast on Twitter. Uh, my personal Twitter feed is at dhqmedia. DHQ Media and Bubba, what's uh, your contact information over there? Well, I can be reached on Twitter at at Tiger Beasley, one word, uh, Beasley B E A S L E Y, where where I um, blog a little bit about comic books and a little bit about politics and sports, and I also uh, blog at uh, a criminal blog, a uh, fan blog for uh, the works of Brubaker and Phillips at criminalcomic.blogspot.com. And I should mention that that is um, where I first got connected with uh, Bubba. I was uh, tossing around the idea of doing this podcast, and um, he seemed like a natural place to go, being a, a obviously a large fan of um, Brubaker and Phillips's work. And so, anyway, I'm here in Missouri, Bubba's in Georgia, um, but we're both connected via the interwebs this evening um, to talk some um, criminal comics and. Um, we're happy to have you on board here. Like I said, this is uh, the first official episode. We we did a, a kind of run-through that we called Episode Zero that is available on our website and on iTunes. Um, so you can check that out for more. Um, and anyway, just to start things off here, uh, Bubba's going to kind of get us up to date on... There's been lots of uh, Brubaker-related news um, recently. And he's been keeping he can, he's been keeping abreast of that. And uh, what's going on in that world, Bubba? Well, uh, you can always um, go to the blog criminalcomic.blogspot.com for um, for bullets for a lot more of you know details here and there, reviews, interviews, previews, solicitations. But the the two big uh, news stories this month is number one. Uh, first of all, looking back uh, at the uh, the fade out the um, Hollywood uh, noir 12-issue uh, epic that just wrapped up is um, is receiving a good bit of uh, praise with uh, with um, the 2016 Eisner Awards. It's uh, comic industry's uh, highest honor. It's uh, not the first time that Brubaker and Phillips have been have been nominated. Um, in 2007, Criminal won Best New Series, uh, while Ed Brubaker won Best Writer. He won that writer that award again in 2008, and I believe again in uh, 2010. Uh, in between 2009, uh, Val Staples was nominated for Best Colorist. Um, in 2012, Last of the Innocent, uh, the the most recent um, 
long-form story arc of Criminal uh, won, uh, won the Eisner for Best Limited Series. Um, in 2013, Dave Stewart uh, won uh, the, the Eisner for Best Colorist for his work on Fatale, Batwoman, and a few uh, Dark Horse books. And uh, last year, uh, the Fade Out was nominated uh, for Best New Series. It did lose last year uh, to uh, Lumberjanes, but it has now been nominated for Best Limited Series. Um, and that was not the only nomination uh, for for the, the creators behind The Fade Out. We have uh, The Fade Out for Best Limited Series. We have Ed Brubaker for Best Writer, again, uh, this time for The Fade Out, Velvet, and uh, the Criminal Special Edition, so that would be uh, a last year's uh, one-shot. And then Best Coloring for, for uh, Elizabeth Brightweiser, Betty Brightweiser, uh, for The Fade Out, uh, for The Criminal Magazine, uh, for Velvet, and then for a work unrelated to Ed Brubaker, um, Outcast. Uh, the awards will be announced on Friday night, July 22nd, at the San Diego Comic-Con International. Pretty much the same time the nomination, those nominations came out is, is that uh, Image Comics had its big yearly um, uh, uh PR event called the Image Expo, where um, where where new series, new projects are, are being announced to be released throughout the remainder of the year, and on April sixth at the the Image Expo um, in C in Seattle, uh, Ed Brubaker announced um, his next big project with Sean Phillips and and with uh, Betty Brightweiser, who's uh, now more and more often getting listed uh, on the front cover credits. Uh, the project is called Kill or Be Killed, uh, announced for uh, summer of this year, I believe July from what I've seen. And it's um, announced as the story, quote, the story of a troubled young man who is compelled to kill bad people and how he struggles to keep his secret as it slowly begins to ruin his life and the lives of his friends and loved ones. So, so another happy-go-lucky, you know, very – very comedic story from Ed Brubaker, if you can tell. Um, one for the one for the whole family to gather oh, around of, on, a, course, on a Sunday evening all, and, and read all ages cartoons. Yes, um, it's called a thriller and a deconstruction of vigilantism. So um, I saw that that Ed Brubaker responded on Twitter after the announcement, if, if with the news being a little bit garbled, that it was less of his his take on a comic book like Punisher. Or, or maybe even 100 bullets and more of a deconstruction uh, of the genre and it's um being announced as an ongoing series a return to to serialized monthly comics and the previous projects haven't been announced as as limited series as mini series so when say uh, Fatal was was wrapping up. People thought were wondering whether it had been canceled, and, and Ed Brubaker had to announce that no, it wasn't. It's reaching its its set end point. Um, and particularly with the fade out, there was no indication that it would be um, a twelve issue series until the solicitations for issue number twelve. There was an exclusive uh, brief interview uh, with Brubaker from USA Today uh, that confirms that it's an ongoing monthly. And there, uh, Brubaker says that the main character is evidently a good guy, coerced to do terrible things. He's an introverted uh, NYU uh, graduate student in his late, tw late 20s who is forced to don a mask and kill one bad person every month, though it's a victim of his own choosing. And uh, since then, I've seen in uh, Sean Phillips' uh, blog and his Twitter feed that that the series is now in progress, that Sean Phillips has now been taking 
you know, uh, reference photos uh, for for the book, but that I would I would at this point be surprised if we learn much more about the series until it comes out. Um, Brubaker has tweeted a couple things along the lines of, of that the book is you know, quote one of these those simple concepts that actually a bit hard to describe without spoiling all the twists of the first issue. Well, unfortunately, um, you know I feel like they're at the point. Uh, they're at the point their reputation uh, precedes itself. So you know the the, the book will sell. Um, you know they don't really need to 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 turn the hype machine on um, to push the book. So yeah, I would I would guess that you're right. I don't think we'll get a lot of a lot of information as far as specifics. Yep. Um, Though if we do, I mean, there there could be another you know two or three page uh, teaser like they did yeah. for for the tenth anniversary. Uh, special for criminal and and that they did for for the fade out um i know that uh, i think that we really are living in a golden age of of creator owned comics where you know it's not just image but you have dark horse you have a few projects from idw you have dc's vertigo line but a lot of uh, a lot of what image is doing is trying to make the the new titles as accessible as possible to to new readers you know with like the image first campaign where it's reprinting first issues for a dollar and then they've collected a few of them in in really inexpensive uh, compendiums where you get nine issues for six bucks and one thing that they've just started i think literally this past week um is a a magazine called image plus that is being included with um the large ma- the, the the monthly catalog called previews where um where it's either a dollar ninety nine or or free with the purchase of previews where they have um interviews and previews and and bonus content and I know they they're gonna they're serializing a walking dead comic and so I'll be on the lookout for that for through that magazine through online for for any news for for this new series but yeah i think they're going to be playing it pretty close to the best i am surprised to hear that it's going that from the outset it's an ongoing series though um i assume killer be killed is a is set it's contemporary right do we know that i don't know if we know that it's not advertising anything that points to a particular era in in the past it doesn't look like it's a period piece so I think we could could assume it, but I don't think it's been been stated outright. Any other news, Bubba? I think those were the two the the two big uh, stories. The only other thing that I think is worthwhile mentioning um, is that uh, Sean Phillips um, a while back curated a uh, an art exhibition uh, for the. Um, Lakes International Art Festival in Kendall, England. It's called uh, the art ex- exhibition has been called uh, Phonographic or Phono Plus Graphic. It's um, it's record covers by comic book artists, and uh, this exhibition is now touring. And as far as I can tell, this will be the first time that it'll be in in North North America. Um, it'll be uh, 100 vinyl record covers by 100 comic book artists. Um, to coincide with the uh, Toronto uh, Comics Art Festival um, in Toronto, uh, the uh, festival runs from uh, May 14th to 15th, and it looks like it's generally free to the public. And then the uh, art exhibition runs from May 12th through 25th, 
uh, with a uh, reception on the night of May 14th, and it which which it looks like uh, Sean Phillips will be will be attending both the uh, the reception and, uh, and and the convention. So I'm not going to be anywhere near to- Toronto um, in a couple of weeks, but yeah, for anyone who's listening to to the show that's in you know Eastern Canada in the Northeast. You know, in the Detroit area, the Great Lakes area, if you're if you hear this uh, before um, May 12th through uh, 25th, it, it sounds like a very intriguing uh, art exhibit to go check out. But yeah, so anyway, moving on, let's uh, let's talk about um, the big release here this month. Is the uh, actually it was last month now uh, since we're now into May, but the Criminal Anniversary Special, um, which Criminal is you know near and dear to both Bubba and I's heart, and uh, this issue did not disappoint. Very big, um, expanded issue. Um, and we should mention also that, uh, obviously, there will be spoilers here that we're going to talk about. So you should definitely read the comic before listening to this podcast. Uh, I assume that goes without saying. But um, anyway, yeah, it's uh, it's another... There was a magazine variant that came out very similar to the one a year ago. Um, we've got another comic within a comic... Um, that they they definitely played with that format and even probably even a bigger way I think than it than it's been done in the past, um, and so it it definitely had this uh, meta quality to it, um, and while other criminal books have 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 had it in there also this and like I said this is maybe even an expanded version to where we're at some points during the comic you know you're reading it this comic within a comic and you're seeing the magazine exactly like the character is. Um, so it's, it's really cool. It's a, it's a unconventional approach and it works really, really well. And, and, and it's, I, what I like about it, uh, it, similar to, um, the previous one shot, the savage short, the savage sword, uh, one shot is that it's not just, um, pages from this comic book, just to give you a flavor of what is being read you're almost reading along with it with the character you're reading the the same pages that that um that he is that teague is last year and and tracy is this year and um in the case of uh the savage sword comic his reading was interrupted by by someone else in county lockup and so you saw that interruption in in the speech bubble and then here much more striking i think uh, toward the very end is you know you're reading um, the the second um, Deadly Hands comic that that Tracy young Tracy was able to get a hold of, and you're just reading the comic and then you you stumble across a um, you're reading the black and white comic and you stumble across a uh, color photograph uh, of his friend Gabby who who gave him the comic book. Yeah, that was such a cool moment and. Uh... And yeah, I was used to the, um, I was used to their their normal transition of throwing a a colorized um, word bubble in on top of the black and white print to take you back into the regular criminal world. You know, I was used to that convention because they had used that several times. And then all of a sudden, um, when I when you saw that picture, you know, it it threw me for a loop for a second. Um, and that was it was a cool effect. I I'd never seen that done in exactly that way before. And it wasn't an effect for for its own sake. It was it was very, I mean, it's it was a very meaningful moment for for Tracy to to stumble across this picture while he's reading the comic book. 
So, yeah, it was. It, it actually it, it did play an important part in showing his his emotional state at, at the time and and how he dealt with it. You can tell that Ed is obviously um, very comfortable in that world. You know, he recreated the kind of that those seventies era. Um, comics very accurately so he obviously has spent many hours of his youth reading um, reading magazines and comics from that era yeah and probably more too many hours of his adulthood too so <laughs> yeah yeah well we we all know about that so so it, it the issue did come in two two formats the the magazine variant that reproduced the comic that you're holding and then you have the the standard um standard size issue which from what i can tell from uh, again from from twitter from social media is going to be the easier copy to find in part because there there are stores who don't order magazine sized um comic books because they have no idea how to what to do with them they don't have the shelf space for them they don't have the uh the long box uh space for them if if they don't sell um and i would actually say that if you are a big uh, fan of Brubaker and Phillips. If you had to get one or the other, spend the extra buck and get the magazine size variant. But if you if you have the money to spend to get both, I would actually recommend getting both because there's a, an essay from Ed Brubaker, a short essay, um, um, about the origins. Yeah, about the origins of Criminal, but it's only in the uh, the standard size issue. Yeah. Yeah, I found myself in the comic shop and and I'm eyeing both versions. You know, and I love, you know, the the cover is very cool on the the actual standard comic. The the standard comic version has, you know, just a classic classic Sean Phillips cover. And so, you know, it jumped out at me and then I'm like pulling it out of the sleeve and thumbing through it. I'm like, "Oh yeah, there's definitely there's different there's definitely different stuff in, in in both of them." So anyway, I did end up picking up both because of that. But I did check and and no, they're not exactly the same. You get that extra essay at the end. Yep. Um almost a love letter to fans. Yeah, it's just that the, the back matter just in criminal in general, um buying those monthly books, you know, the back matter is is it's really something, you know. It's definitely worth picking up um as opposed to just the trades, which yeah, the trades are easy to read. Um but but that back matter, you know, I've, you know, learned about all kinds of different, you know, film noir movies that I'd never heard of and, and you know, various television shows that, that Ed's into and stuff, you know, plus just the journals and essays and stuff. You really get a lot of material with that, uh, with the, the monthly issues, you know. There's a lot of bang for your buck there. So, um, yeah, definitely check out both versions. Um, and they're both, you know, you can just tell the, the care that they're putting these things together. Um, they really, you know, they, this this magazine variant really stands out from the pack. You know, just uh, everything about it is just a, it's a good read. And there's a couple lines, okay, you know, so we're talking about this this comic within a comic, um, with uh, Fang the Kung Fu Werewolf, which is the sub story that takes place, um, inside this criminal world that uh, the the kid Tracy Lawless character um, keeps revisiting throughout the story, um. And there's a couple lines in there that that jumped out at me um, that were that were interesting. Um, Tracy's talking about the the Fang comic uh, at a couple different points, um, and there's one spot he says, "I quote, like it's a comic for kids pretending to be a comic for grown-ups," which that line jumped out at me um, because I think it it says a lot um, with kind of what Brubaker and Phillips are doing with their books. You know, we're getting these. Um, obviously stories for adults, adult themes, 
but told through what a lot of people and traditionally has been seen as a child's medium of, of comic books, you know. So I thought that line definitely was an interesting uh, kind of take on what on what they're doing and what a lot of other people are doing too. It's just kind of the state of comics today. But anyway, yep. you know, they're they're using these kind of Silver Age um, motifs and stuff throughout their stories, but telling adult contemporary stories. And in many cases, subverting um, the, 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 the techniques, like with, um, particularly with, with Last of the Innocent, you have these very, you know, Sunday funny type or Archie comic type um, drawings, remi- you know, uh, uh, showing the main character reminiscing about his past, you know, nostalgia, the, the nostalgia filter produced for him these, these sort of um, very cartoony uh, comic uh, comic pages uh, of his own life, his, his own biography. And, and here it's, um, I mean, for one thing, I, I just love the phrase, Fang the Kung Fu Werewolf. I've been, I, I, I have enjoyed telling people who have, who, who, know vaguely that I read crime fiction and comic books and, you know, people, you know, friends at church that, that are kind of shocked to learn that, that, that I, I tell them, you know, that one of the most serious and moving books I've read, you know, introduces the, the fantastic new character find for 2016, Fang the Kung Fu Werewolf. So (laughs) this comic, the, the, the fictional uh, Deadly Hands comic book that Tracy is reading and then the two books that that his friend Gabby uh, is reading that he, she alludes to, um, I think pretty clear allusions to um, Harriet the Spy and the Outsiders. Their their fiction and, and books, you know, their comic books and novels that that are helping kids bridge the gap from from childhood into adulthood. It's not quite, you know, it's it's it's. In a lot of cases, it's not literature that that would be winning a lot of awards, but it is the stuff that mean that is really meaningful uh, during your your transition from from childhood, where there are you know where there's clarity between black and white, and there are clear boundaries, and you know your place in the world, to to adulthood, where you get to define largely to define your place in the world. So, yeah, and I don't just off the top of my head, I don't remember. This was another interesting thing about this book is, um, you know, the bulk of the book is largely from a child's point of view. Can you can you think of any other other? I mean, that's not really a Brubaker thing that he's done a lot, really, has he? I mean, from a vantage point of a child, I can't think of anything else off the top of my head where he's done that. The books are a lot about about families, but you know, the criminal in particular. Where you have these two generations of uh, of criminals, and you'll hear, you know, or read voiceover narration um, of of the characters, you know, describing pivotal events when they were growing up. But it's always um, as an a, adult, yeah, as an adult, yeah, and, and their actions have consequences on the kid, the 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 kids around them, you know, so. So the consequences bounce from one generation to the next, but it always is as an adult character, either looking back with nostalgia or, in in Tracy's case, looking back with with contempt at what a, what his dad did. So, yeah, that's true. There's a lot of talk about, um, you know, 
your formative youth years and stuff. But but yeah, usually not from the child's point of view. Um, it's usually yeah, like you said, an adult reminiscing. So anyway, that was an interesting thing about this book is that it's um, virtually the whole book is from a child's point of view, and it's um, I think it's definitely uh, kind of Tracy Lawless becoming who Tracy Lawless turned into um, as an adult. Um, I think that's what you're seeing the, the the transformation take place in this book, you know, and he's he's accepting um, kind of the the sad state of affairs of his life and and how things are going to turn out. And and he, you know, maybe it's just in my head, but yeah, you can definitely see. I think you can see Tracy's adult Tracy's features in the kid, um, you know, which was which was a nice touch. And you can also see see how the cynicism beyond his years, you know, the 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 loneliness. And and there are times when he genuinely looks like a kid just just goofing off and, you know, being a delinquent with another kid that that he's become a friend with. So I think in terms of the perspective, though, and I I just checked um, all of the previous criminal books are not only from the, the adult's perspective, but that that narration is in all caps. And this is the first time where the narration is I, I'm, I'm not sure I'm making more of this than I should, but that um, Tracy's first person nar- narration is, you know, just the first sentence is, or just the first letter of the first word of the sentence is, is capitalized. Everything else is lowercase. It, it's much more naturalistic writing than the sort of um, the the sort of hard boiled uh, prose that that we've really come to expect uh, from from the from all of the characters in the criminal books. That's interesting. I hadn't noticed that about the lettering. Um, but yeah, there's another line too um, that Tracy says when he's talking about Deadly Hands. He says, it's a comic, but like bigger, which you know also alluded me towards the, the magazine variant, which is like a comic, but bigger. You know, and, and so I thought that was an interesting line that I thought referenced um, another kind of playing on the genre there that, that and, and added to that meta quality of the comic within a comic. And they just, like I said, it's, it's a very seamless way that they incorporate both stories in there. And it's, um, it was good. It was good in last year's. And I think they even, they even nailed it even more in this year's. Yep. And which, which I think would be a hard, hard thing to do because you don't get even the semblance of a complete story in that story within a story. The thing, the Kung Fu werewolf doesn't have a single arc the way, um, Zangar the barbarian did last year. And you can see that was you know you can you can see this throughout lots of Brubaker's books that he obviously has um, a soft spot for print as a medium, which is no surprise considering that he makes his living as a writer. Um, but you see these you know you see it show up a lot in his books. You know just the you see books, bookstores, comics, magazines. Um, you see these just they they show up throughout all of his books, even going back to. Um, low life, you know, back in the early '90s, one of his indie comics, um, the the main character is Tommy, um, who I think is largely autobiographical, or that's what I've read. Yep. Um, but anyway, he he works. Tommy works at a bookstore, and the I noticed the in this um, criminal one shot, the the bookstore that he vis that young Tracy visits. There's this there's this older ponytailed um, guy that owns the bookstore. It reminded me very much of Tommy's boss in Low Life. Very similar character. This kind of old grizzled, um, old grizzled guy working in a dark bookstore. 
Um, and so anyway, I just thought that was, that was an interesting, that was interesting that those two reminded me quite a lot of each other. Yep. Not a, not a stereotype, not a, a parody, but, but definitely a type, a character type that, that, that people, that the sort of, the sort of person that would run a used bookstore is probably going to be a little eccentric. Yeah, and I think that I mean it just you know yeah no it, it really seems true to life and uh, you know it just obviously shows that um, Ed has spent a large a large amount of time in, in in old bookstores you know which you know are cool places so anyway you do see that recurring. It is very very easy for for writers to fall into um, writing about writing, and in this in this case and in the case of. You know, Last of the Innocent, and and even in the case of of I would say Bad Night, where where it's the closest that Ed Brubaker gets to a writer writing about writing, is that it's not a a focus on the craft. It's not a focus on on the industry. It's really a focus on what. Artwork in general and literature in particular, what the what effect it has on on people, that you know, in the case uh, of young Tracy and, and Gabby, clearly reading takes them away from from a life that that they'd like to escape, and in the case of of um, of Bad Night and Jacob, in that character, writing was a way to. To cope with a very troubled, um, uh, a very troubled life and a very troubled mental state, and in the case of of Last of the Innocent, um, the the nostalgia of reading old comic books was about trying to connect with the past. It wasn't just reading for its own sake. And I think that's what connects us as readers of this particular comic book. You know, in, in you know, uh, us as reading the tenth anniversary Criminal One Shot allows us to connect with Tracy reading his comic book. And obviously, you know, it's it's easy to read into stuff as being autobiographical, um, but there are certain lines, when, when that might not be the case, but when you're reading an author's work, um, even fictional work, you know, you always think, oh, is he talking about something autobiographical there? But anyway, there were a couple lines that jumped out at me. You know, there was, there's one where young Tracy at the, towards the end is, you know, his kind of accepted where he's at in his life and he says um it's easier to be a fictional character how sad is that um and anyway i wondered if that was you know maybe brubaker talking about you know kind of exploring his fears or insecurities through a comic book character you know choosing that medium to kind of work through issues that you that you may have or that you may had have had at one time um so i thought that was an interesting line there towards the end of the book yeah the the Temptation to put on a mask, to have a persona, rather than to to have real connections. So. Right. Yeah, and I should mention just uh, we haven't you know we've we've been talking about the writing, but the you know the we should talk about the art side of things a little bit here too. Um, you know, really spectacular work for, work from uh, Sean Phillips, Elizabeth Brightweiser. Um, you know, I had the couple scenes I had I had written down that I just that really jumped out at me. The opening scene. Um, of the comic where young Tracy is is gassing up the car um, while Teague is inside, um, just fantastic art. The, the colors, the colors on all of the night scenes in particular, um, really seem to be where Brightweiser shines. Um, these 
kind of pink and orange hues um, s- smeared with the lights and stuff is just is really fantastic. And there's a there's a shot at the end of the book, um, kind of after the climax of the story, where the car where uh, Teague and Tracy are leaving town and the sun's setting, um, and they're kind of going off into the into the distance. That's just just fantastic, you know. And I think that the detail is really something, you know. Even like the the front of the grocery store that they visit when they're looking for the girl. Um, when Teague's looking for the girl and ends up sending Tracy in, you know, there's just all these little details that you can look at the front of the the, the small town grocery store. It's it's detailed, but but the way I, I've always tried to to explain his artwork to others is that it's detailed, but almost impressionistic. That it's setting a mood, it's conveying emotion, particularly um, in uh, Sean Phillips' work on on faces, you know, um, but. Yeah, the bookstore is. I think I I saw um, on social media Sean Phillips saying that he might have gone a little overboard in making the uh, the used bookstore so detailed. But yeah, it, I I think the however much extra time he spent on those few panels was was worth it because it looks like a store that you could really get lost in. In it looks like a store that you could spend hours in. Yeah, I feel like um, where he's excelling, it's a really good balance. Because, like you said, he, um, the bulk of his shots don't have tons of detail. You know, he he doesn't spend. You know, there's not all this this stuff going on in the background on the vast majority of the shots. There's a lot of close ups, a lot of faces, a lot of darkness. Obviously, with the the noir thing, um, but when it when it, when the time's right, you know, he'll like you said, like the bookstore or the grocery store. There's these highly detailed shots that are mixed in there and it's it's a really good balance i mean because you know and it, it fits with the book because you know ultimately those you know the the facial expressions and the the emotions are you know that's the heart of the book but um they're also world building you know and 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 so those i think those detailed shots give you a sense of that world and and kind of the grittiness of of their surroundings and and it's just a it's a really good balance to where you know, I don't want those detailed shots getting in the way of the story, but when they're mixed in in just the right amount, um, I think it really kind of transports you into that world in a good way. Well, so so having having seen uh, Betty Brightweiser's coloring in uh, the Fade Out and in Criminal and in Velvet in completely different contexts, you know, the the very bright. Uh, daylight funeral in issue number two of the fade out the the city scenes in velvet and here you have these these rural very run down very blue collar settings um in in the criminal one shot you can see that it's not just uh, it's not just a single approach to all of the projects that night always looks like this that day always looks like like this and there are times where there are some flourishes in the coloring where you can see both in terms of, of Sean Phillips line work and in terms of, of Brightweiser's coloring that, that they are really flexing their, their talents, but, but they're choosing to do so um, with the most impact. And one, one area where, where I've seen a, a reviewer online uh, draw attention to this would be, would be the violence is that, um, I have no problem with with you know I guess the hyper violent you know the Frank Miller Sin City type comics, but I'm I'm not I don't connect with them as much in part because the characters and, and the the events are just 
so cartoonish that you can't really connect with them. Here, the violence is visceral. It's it's personal. It's rare, but when it when it occurs, it 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 really is a gut punch. And what tends to happen is is Sean Phillips tends to reduce or even completely remove backgrounds when there are um, when when violence takes place, and then Brightweiser tends to emphasize make the color even more more dramatic and higher contrast and it just really really makes the the moments of violence in the comic really uh pop compared to the rest of the book without having to do a full splash page yeah and this is i definitely think they take the uh i think brubaker and phillips definitely take more like the scorsese violence approach as opposed to maybe the tarantino violence approach um the the only other thing I would mention is where this book fits in the larger um, in the larger world of the uh, the criminal series. Uh, there are two things that stick out in in comparing this book to the other the the other Tracy and Teague Lawless uh, centric stories, which are um, Lawless, the second volume, the the third volume, the Dead and the Dying. And then the uh, the fifth volume, uh, the Sinners, which is the the, the sequel to Lawless, is um, number one. What what stood out beyond the difference in lettering with the narration is that this is the first time we see a story with Teague or Tracy, where it's first person narration. Um, when we first see uh, Tr- Tracy Lawless in that second arc. Uh, we move from from first person narration in coward um, to to second or to third person narration to kind of give and I, I if I remember correctly Brubaker's explanation was was to provide a bit of um, distance uh, between the reader and and Tracy Lawless is how do we make make it clear that that this guy is is a hard a a, a hardened man. Even around hardened criminals, or how do we convey in the case of, of Teague, to to quote the story, the story's title for that, um, for the dead and the dying arc, how do we convey that he's a wolf among wolves, and we and one way they do it is with third third person narration. We do have some insight into his thoughts. You know, is that that Teague thinks to himself dot dot dot, uh, but it's not first person so it's almost as if um tracy lawless was just like any other any other kid you know he 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 was like leo in in coward and was like um jacob in in bad night and we see that with that first person narration but by the time he becomes an adult uh we see that 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 he has become a very, very different man, a, a hardened, stoic, distant um, individual, and, and the third-person narration, I think, reflects that really effectively. He's definitely, um, you know, he was always somewhat of a sympathetic character, I think, and um, even going back to to Lawless, you know, you, 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 know you, you always sympathized with him. But yeah, after the this current one-shot, um, I definitely think he's a sympathetic character when, you know, and, you know, Teague is rough. He's rough with him in this particular book. I mean, harsher than we've maybe seen him at other times with his son. Um, but you see him becoming kind of uh, 
becoming the guy that he's going to become. That, like you said, this this stoic, um, isolated individual. Um, but anyway, you see these glimpses of him, you know, as a, as just a kid, you know, trying to get through life. But then, uh, you know, there's there's several times throughout the book where you know he's, you know, he's given he's just basically thrown in the towel and saying, you know, this is the the, the you know this is the hand I've drawn and, and this is who I'm going to be. So anyway, I definitely think I even had even more sympathy for him as a character after reading this this one shot than I did even from the the original books. And we see, I think, a re- recurring theme with um, with Tracy. The contrast between him and his father is Teague is just a stone cold um, sociopath that has no code other than doing what is necessary to protect himself. And, you know, we get glimpses of him trying to protect his family, but, you know, he's not, not very good at that either. But then Tracy has this code where he kind of keeps getting in trouble, um, protecting the vulnerable. Um, I think, you know, that if you read between the lines, that's what, what he was doing, um, in, in military prison, uh, at the beginning uh, of Coward, or I'm sorry, beginning of Lawless, and it's how he got wrapped up into um, into trouble in both of his arcs. Is you know he kept allowing himself to fall in love and wanting to protect the person, the, the woman he fell in love with. Yeah, well, and even and Trace even says that at times, like you know, I kind of hate myself for saying it, but I kind of understand where he's coming from. You know, he sees his his kind of convoluted logic um, after he kills. Um, the the woman and 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 the other guy that that bungled the the murder. Yeah, um, but he makes you know, sure Trace... to pay the pay the motel bill. So he exactly. So, so he comes, you... <laughs> so he disappears into anonymity. Yeah, and the other thing is, you know, I, I guess this is reading between the lines. This may be reading too much. This is, this is certainly conjecture, but it's one of the things I like to do is whenever dates are stated, is try to get a chronology. To see what events lead to, to the next ones. And if you look in um, in Tracy's first arc, Lawless, um, he goes to, to a snow-covered cemetery to see the, uh, the tombstones of his mother, of his dad, and, and the, the newly – the re- much more recent tombstone of his, of his brother Rick. What I think is really interesting is that you actually see – at least the years on the tombstones, his mother, uh, Angela, dies in 1979. So we have, from this one shot, we have set, set established, we have set up that Tracy had been on the road with his dad the year before, I think it was you know skipping bail, and he's now on the, the road again, this time on the, the mission to, to clean up the mess from from a couple of, uh, of other criminals who, who didn't uh, properly dispose of, of evidence, dispose of a body. Cover their and, tracks. Yeah, covering their tracks. And we don't have a single mention of, uh, uh, of Ricky, of the fact that he has a brother. We we don't have a direct mention of uh, of his mom, except that we find out when when, when Teague is fooling around that that uh, Tracy says that, that his dad is married. Um, it is entirely possible that his mom passes away during the course of the story that by the time they get back, they find that she has already been a few days dead, which adds, I think, I think even, even more tragic subtext to, to the, the entire proceedings. 
Yeah, as if it wasn't sad enough, that would really take it over the top. Yep, and uh, like, I, and if this um, if this theory is correct, it is conjecture, but it, but the dates and the and the events line up. If it's correct, I think it's it's admirable that it wasn't pointed out. That it's one of those things that you that 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 could only be pieced together. You are listening to the Undertow podcast. This is episode one a podcast dedicated to the crime comics of Ed Brubaker and Sean Phillips. In this last week, um, we've also, in addition, we've had a, a couple Brubaker things come out. You know, besides the criminal um, anniversary one-shot, we've also um, had the return of Velvet after a, a, a little bit of a break here. Yep, it's uh, Velvet issue number 14. And yeah, the, the C- series has not been as published on schedule as as I think you know, the creators, in this case, it's um, Ed Brubaker again and his longtime, I, I guess it's Captain It's Captain America, his collaborator, uh, Steve Epstein. And again with uh, Brady, Betty Brightweiser for uh, coloring. And I think if you, if you look even in the letters pages early on that they got off schedule fairly quickly. Um, but it, I just reread through the series um, uh with uh, number 14 coming out and it is a fun book. Um, it is very dense. You have to keep up. Um, it is compared to say even sleeper, not nearly as episodic. I thought the first few issues of, of sleeper reading, reading them after the fact and trade, I thought the, um, the individual issues were a little more self-contained. This is much more, uh, a long form storytelling that, that doesn't, uh, benefit from, from the delays, but the artwork is gorgeous. Um, the story is is compelling. It's we still haven't learned the big mystery. What we have with uh, issue number fourteen, you know, quick spoilers is that uh, the fictional world uh, of Arc Seven and the sort of high tech gadgetry of uh, Cold War espionage and Velvet is colliding with uh, fact. So fact and fiction collide. Um, as last issue, we, we found out that um, somehow the Watergate Hotel and the, uh, the famous break-in at the Watergate was, it, was wrapped up into the, the central mystery and the big conspiracy. And uh, that last big reveal about Watergate in, in issue 13 has led to, um, well, blackmailing and kidnapping uh, the two highest political officers uh, in, the, in the United States, the vice president and the president. Velvet and uh, drugs and and interrogates Richard Nixon, uh, to, and she finds out why the the great conspiracy going on um, in in her agency, why the great conspiracy is keeping her alive, but we don't learn along with her. So that's probably um, the big reveal that's that's being uh, held until the next issue. The next issue I think is still scheduled uh, for. Um, June, so hopefully we'll have this uh, this third arc, the man who sold the world, or the man who stole the world, um, rather than the uh, the David Bowie song, the man who stole the world uh, will hopefully uh, be wrapping up very very shortly. Yeah, when uh, when Richard Nixon showed up in this book, um, I, yeah, I was not. It caught me off guard. I wasn't expecting um, a real life person um, to to come into this fictional book, and it was kind of strangely. Almost the same effect as when I was reading first reading the trade of Sleeper, and Grifter showed up, and I'm like, "What the hell is Grifter doing in this uh, Brewbaker world?" Because I wasn't I wasn't very particularly familiar with the Wildstorm universe. So anyway, 
I had that same effect with Grifter and uh, then again with Richard Nixon um, later on. But anyway, both both good reads, and now if we can get a book with Grifter and Richard Nixon together, um, we'll have something. That would be a book I would read. Yep. For sure. Both of them teaming up with Fang, the Kung Fu werewolf. and There you go. Yeah, yeah. why not? Why not? And, 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 and basically the story sells itself, I think. So. I, I mean, I, I think so. I'm there. I, you know, I would get out my two ninety nine for that any day of the week. So, um, but anyway, Velvet, yeah, uh, Velvet is a yeah, like like Bubba said, very complex read. They just keep adding in layer after layer after layer to this um, Cold War espionage thriller, and it's it's a it's a it's a great read. And um, like I said, future future episode of the Undertow podcast, we're going to do a Velvet a Velvet themed episode. Um, and also, uh, we're gonna we're gonna delve into the fade out as well. Um, Bub has been doing some great write ups on his site, um, revisiting the fade out. So anyway, look for that to come on on subsequent episodes. Um, and you know, as we're as we're working through this podcast, you know, we're we're kind of going to establish some some various segments that we um, would like to try out. And uh, one that we would like to do is do a, a little section at the end where we just kind of talk about what we're reading or watching or into at the at the moment and, and kind of our some recommendations. And uh, Bubba, what's your uh, recommendation this month? My recommendation, and this is in terms of, of tone and maybe as far from uh, the world of criminal as you could imagine, but it's uh, Transformers versus G.I. Joe, uh, published by IDW. Um, primarily written and, and drawn by Tom Scholey with uh, writing help from uh, from John Barber, and it's it's a series. I've mentioned this early on uh, in, in our podcast uh, because it's a series that's close to wrapping up. They just announced that they'll be ending with uh, issue 13, which um, means a total of 14 issues. It, it, the the series debuted with a uh, free comic book day uh, with a number zero issue, uh, a full standalone story and then they've had um 12 monthly issues since then and a single two-page uh story in, in in another free comic book day and it is i don't think the book is for everyone if if you hold either gi joe or transformers as almost sacred you're probably not gonna going to enjoy a, a series that that takes liberties and that pushes the envelope with, you know, art that's very much inspired by, by Kirby with a little bit of Frank Miller, very dense um, storytelling where um, there are times you almost think that you're, um, that, that the creators are just, you know, setting up their action figures and, and declaring full scale war and letting the, uh, letting the consequences play out as cosmically and almost as ridiculously as possible. Um, and if you're completely unfamiliar with G.I. Joe and Transformers, I've got a feeling you may be almost as lost in the series as my wife has been. You know, she tells me, I, I, I showed her an issue just to see how bonkers it was. And, and, and she says, I don't know what's going on. And I thought, yeah, no, um, it's, it is bonkers. But brilliant. Um, I've told uh, other other comic book fans that I think it's what um, Grant Morrison's uh, DC miniseries Final Crisis tried to be—something that that is epic, something that that 
challenge the reader in terms of being almost too much to keep up with, but you can, I think, uh, keep up with it. And it's dense the way that the Brubaker Phillips books are. They're, it's well worth uh, rereading. Um, and there are moments where where it is surprisingly emotional, where they have they have dramatic payoffs, where you learned that in this this very surreal um, surreal setting, where um, the Transformers are invading Earth and the GI Joe decide to um, to invade back, um, so they become little green men on on the Transformers uh, planet of Cybertron. Uh, which is, I think, a hilarious little twist. Um, it's it's such a wild story that you can get taken surprise. You can can be surprised and taken aback by the the moments of real of real drama. And it's um, I've gotten to the point in my life where I I still enjoy comic books, but the licensed stuff I not so much. But if it's in a if it's in a standalone universe where you're not having to worry about crossovers every six months, whether it's in an eight eight page you know short story or in this case this a, a macro series set a, set in its own continuity where the creators can really take their ideas and take their concepts as far as they they can take them. There's something worth worth finding in a, a comic book that's smashing together two you know. Two properties that were first toys, and then, then cartoons, and then comic books, just to sell more toys. So, yeah, yeah. Well, that's Bubba's. That's Bubba's recommendation this month is Transformers versus GI Joe. Um, my recommendation, um, what I've been reading um, recently, other than Brubaker, is Jeff Lemire. Um, I had read, I've read quite a bit of Jeff Lemire's work. Um, not a lot of his DC superhero stuff, but I. Uh, Sweet Tooth is what originally got me hooked on on Jeff's work. Um, I recently reread that series and have just kind of went all the way back to to Jeff's first work. Uh, I believe it's his first work is Essex County, and I'm about two thirds of the way through that. Um, but anyway, really, really good stuff. Highly recommended. Um, definitely in the indie comics world, but r- really not uh, Brew Baker esque at all. Um, he's uh, I'm sure a lot of you are familiar with Jeff's work. He, his profile has gotten very high recently, but anyway, he's a. Um, at least when he started out, he he was both a, he was a full cartoonist doing his artwork and writing. Um, Essex County uh, takes place in his is a fictional story set in his um, home county, a rural county in Ontario. Um, and then Sweet Tooth is is kind of a, a post apocalyptic tale, um, but it's just a. It's very unconventional artwork, um, very different from Sean Phillips. Like I said, um, there's not a lot of detail. Um, it's stylized, kind of cartoony, but he's got an un- you know Lemire has an uncanny ability um, to render emotions out of these these simple panels. I mean, it's he he you know it's and I can't even really put my finger on what it is. Like I said, there's not a lot of detail, but he'll you know zoom in on a close up of um, a character's eyes or something and, and, you know, very sparse panels with sparse narration, but just renders this incredible amount of emotion and, and, and sadness. And, um, it's just, it's, it's really good work. And so anyway, that's, um, kind of my recommendation this month would be Sweet Tooth, Essex County, Jeff Lemire. 
um, great stuff to uh, to visit or revisit if you've already read it. Um, and that's been kind of my counterpoint to uh, my Brubaker reading over the last couple of weeks. It's really it's he's it's an interesting stuff because it's really not. Um, if you just describe the story, it's really not commercial sounding at all. You know, at least like Brubaker and Phillips, that's indie comics for sure. But um, you know, like heist crime those motifs you know those are marketable motifs that you see in a lot of movies television comics that you know there's, the stuff that there's a huge section of of mystery books in the barnes and noble even if there aren't there aren't a huge number of crime books in the comic book store right right but yeah this this jeff lemire stuff and like i said he's moved into doing you know he's writing x-men now and stuff so he's doing big superhero blockbuster stuff but anyway this earlier stuff like essex county it's it's hard to categorize, you know. It's these rural, simple rural tales of these um, intersecting characters doing, you know, various mundane things. But there's just it's just this raw emotion, and he's known for, um, you know, children play. You know, he he's he's very good at writing um, child characters, and you know, Sweet Tooth, the main character of Sweet Tooth, is a is a is a hybrid child, half child, half deer. Um, it's these, and it's. You know he's he can tap into these these emotions that are you know you can rarely find that much in in a, in a comic so um, that's kind of my recommendation this month and uh, we're gonna wrap things up here on on the Undertow podcast um, we didn't want to be too serious here with you so um, we're going to end it uh, with a segment called Hey Kids Crime Can Be Funny um, and we just wanted to point out. You know, we're we're reading these serious books uh, with murder and mayhem and criminals, and but you know, every once in a while, you'll come across this line, and you just can't help but laugh. And and I can't imagine that that uh, Ed and Sean weren't laughing when they were creating them. So, uh, Bubba, did is there any what 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 funny jumped out at you in the middle of this um, this story? What what I found really funny was um, the the bookstore owner um, uh, Walter was um he had looked through the the deadly hands comic and and he says you know man these were a trip kung fu werewolf they must have been high and (laughs) and i just find it funny in the context of you know on top of everything else the this book was um delayed by a week so it ended up coming out on 420 the famous stoner's holiday um alongside you know the last uh uh one shot for chew uh, for uh, Poyo, the uh, the um, secret agent, warrior, demon chicken, um, and then the latest issue of, of uh, Transformers versus GI Joe is that I just found it a, a amusing that these books that I think are wild enough, you know, that they're perfect for stoners, coming out on 420 with uh, this guy who's you know whose absent-mindedness and his tendency not to open on time and you know he's clearly not all themselves all there himself working in a town where all the money's coming in because of pot you know i i, I found it amusing that that he f- comes across a uh a, a comic book that is too far out even for him so yeah and you know my uh my humorous pick of the of <laughs> of the month was kind of you know kind of goes along with the stoner theme it involves the exchange between um teague and tracy outside the grocery store in regards to buying a candy bar which i i I found this really funny i was almost laughing out loud you know he's so he's sending 
his son, who's, you know, what, 12 or 13, I think, in the book, um, into yep. the grocery store to case out this place and find this girl um, that ultimately we know he's going to kill. Um, so, you know, real serious stuff, needless to say. But anyway, um, at the moment, you know, so he's sending his son in to scope this out because he doesn't want to be recognized. And and uh, the son says, well, what, you know, what am I supposed to be doing in here? And, and Teague says, you know, well, just, you know, go buy us a candy bar or whatever. And he has to get money from him. And, and uh, so Teague says to Tracy, and you better not get me a fucking Snickers, which was pretty funny. And uh, so Tracy goes into the store, you know, buys the buys the candy bars, finds the girl, you know, gets his intel and, and comes back out, you know. So these are serious things that Teague's dealing with and. And, uh, you know, he's preparing to, to take out these two people. And, um, and what does he say when, uh, um, when Tracy returns, he says, where's my candy bar? And, uh, Tracy says here and hands it to him. And Teague says, fuck yes, Butterfinger, which just, you know, killed me. I thought that was a, that was a classic line. I can't imagine that, um, it would make a great ad. It would make a really good ad. Yeah, I can't imagine that Brubaker wasn't laughing when he wrote "fuck yes, Butterfinger." Yeah, you know, that's just a that's a classic line. Um, so anyway, that was my pick for you know this month for the "Hey Kids, Crime Can Be Funny" segment um, that we're trying out. Um, so anyway, Bubba, I think that'll that should pretty much wrap us up for this month. Um, good conversation on on the criminal one shot, which was a big a big issue in in the world of Brubaker and Phillips comics. Once again, this is the Undertow Podcast. Um, I'm Robert Watson. Uh, my more qualified co-host is Bubba Beasley. Um, our episodes will be available on iTunes, so uh, you know you can give us some reviews and uh, help spread the word on the show since we're new and um, get the word out. Um, we are also going to be available at undertow.podbean.com. You can email us, undertowpodcast at gmail.com, or find us on Twitter at Undertow Podcast. And we will see you in uh, about a month, and we will talk some more Brubaker and Phillips crime comics. Thanks, folks. I loved you in the morning, our kisses deep and warm, your hair upon the pillow like a sleepy golden storm. Here's many love before us, I know that we are not you.